Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. This is the Highlights Podcast. I had a big conversation about carbon taxes on the program today. And one prominent environmentalist making the case that carbon taxes are not the way to a post-carbon future. We also talked about teacher pay and uh, try to get to this empirical model where we could uh, accurately and adequately price uh, the value of teachers in our society. Uh, listen to the Kincaid and Breckenridge Show, weekday mornings, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Uh, I'm Roger. That's Rob. Uh, we're going to spend some time this hour talking about um, some of the, the government policies that are trying to save our planet. Is that a f- safe way to put that? Uh, because we had this meeting of the First Ministers, and we, we did have uh, Prime Minister Trudeau um, talking about this idea of a carbon tax, a federal carbon tax, where we have various jurisdictions that have their own um, carbon pricing policies in place, right? Right. So we're going to get to this idea about whether or not a Canadian, like a pan-Canadian carbon tax would be a good idea or not a good idea in terms of trying to achieve some sort of uh, sustainable end. Well, you know, it's weird because Alberta's already announced a carbon tax, and so why do we need another one, I guess? Like, I, I think a lot of Albertans thought, oh, well, okay, fine, all right, we did it, okay. We got our carbon tax, good, that's done. It's like, well, no, wait a sec, but we want our carbon tax too, is what Ottawa is saying, I guess. Or, I, I don't know, it's all weird terminology that it's, you know, we're looking uh, for a, a carbon pricing mechanism. Well, okay, isn't that a carbon tax? Why don't we just call it a carbon tax? I thought the beauty of a carbon tax was its simplicity. And now we're just finding weird ways of of calling it something other than a tax. We do want to explore this, though, because, I mean, when governments set out with new policies, new taxes, uh, typically they are to achieve an end. What's the end that we're trying to achieve with this carbon tax? And would that end be achieved with a carbon tax? These are all pretty important questions, and we're going to uh, bring our guest into the program now. Steve Cohen is the executive director of Columbia University's Earth Institute and a professor in the practice of uh, public affairs at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs as well. So, Steve, maybe you could just start off by, by giving us an idea about what the Earth Institute is, what it does. Well, the Earth Institute is the largest research institute at Columbia University, and it gathers scholars from all over the university um, about 750 people to uh, address all of the issues of global sustainability. So we have about 100 climate scientists. Uh, we also have uh, within the Earth Institute uh, uh, the, uh, what I would consider the world-renowned Lamont Darity Earth Observatory, which includes some of the most famous climate scientists and seismologists uh, in the world. And then we have groups that do public policy and environmental law, climate law, water, energy. Uh, we also work with the schools at Columbia to set up educational programs. So there's an a undergraduate major in sustainable development here, a PhD, a master's in sustainability management, a master's in environmental science and policy, and so on. So we are basically, uh, the way the, the Columbia has addressed sustainability is instead of setting up a new school, we have tapped into all the expertise we have around the university and created this sort of giant integrating institute on top of it all. Okay. Well, we're speaking to you at a time in Canada where uh, we've seen British Columbia with a carbon tax for a little while now. Uh, Alberta, the province we live in, has followed suit and has uh, just uh, introduced a, a carbon tax. It hasn't taken effect yet, but they've, uh, they've uh, outlined what the carbon tax is. And it comes at a time when our prime minister is uh, speaking uh, about the concept of a pan-Canadian carbon tax that would uh, go on top of uh, all these additional carbon taxes that individual jurisdictions uh, would come up with. Uh, so what would you tell the prime minister about implementing a carbon tax? 
Well, I, I think there are a lot of economists who think this is the answer to climate change, and I think it has that there are some elements of truth to that. That if you can price carbon, then you can reduce its use and, and speed the transition to renewable energy. Uh, then that's going to help uh, the economy and the planet. I am a little skeptical about price as the only determinant of that behavior because energy is so central to so much of everything we do. In other words, uh, you know, you can tax it, uh, but people are still going to use it until there's an alternative. Now, if the tax is used to fund basic research and applied research on renewable energy, then uh, then it could actually have a positive effect. But a tax itself, you know, if I if I punish you for doing something, but I give you no alternative, uh, you're going to keep doing whatever the bad behavior was till there's an alternative. But do you think it, it drives the search for that alternative as, as companies uh, faced with the choice of, of continuing with the status quo and paying it, the, the tax on the emissions or looking for innovation, innovation that will help them avoid those emissions and avoid that tax? Does it does it drive that? Well, there again, that's what economists say. I think that, in fact, there's two ways to approach this. You could raise the price of fossil fuels, which is what that does, or you could work really hard to lower the price of renewable energy uh, and provide uh, incentives and subsidies for, for that. I, I think, again, it depends on the politics. In Canada, you might be able to get uh, this through uh, your government. In the United States, it's never going to happen, uh, at least under the current political regime. Mm -hmm. So here, I think we should be focusing on uh, our energies on the creativity to lower prices and to create renewable energy. I think there's a lot of brain power around the world going to work on that uh, price or no price. In other words, uh, you know, one way or the other, uh, with, with climate change, with a population in the world of 7 billion now growing to probably 9 billion, uh, fossil fuels are going to run out. Uh, not in my lifetime or yours, but, you know, they're a finite resource. And our economy is totally built on energy. Everything we do requires energy, and we're going to need more and more of it uh, to clean the, our water and to clean our air and to make sure that our children and grandchildren can live the lifestyle that we live. So we have to get off of fossil fuels. It's just a question of how fast uh, and how uh, wrenching the transition is going to be. And uh, to me, I think uh, what I would be looking for uh, is uh, human ingenuity and lots of brain power and lots of research uh, on alternatives. Uh, you know, there's a lot that's been done. Solar energy is now much less expensive than it used to be. Batteries are getting better and better. Uh, we see microgrids and smart grids being installed. So we're just a, a breakthrough or two away from, uh, uh, you know, renewable energy really being uh, the answer. Uh, and in fact, driving fossil fuels from the marketplace simply because of their market power. Now, the, the way I sometimes put this is, uh, you know, in New York City at the beginning of the 20th century, our biggest uh, environmental problem was horse manure. We were knee-deep in it. Uh, by 1920, there was no more horse manure because the internal combustion engine drove the horse out of business. We didn't have a tax on horses. We just found out something better. So what I would like to see is uh, you know, an electric car with a 1,000-mile battery range. Uh, if you had that, uh, you'd have no reason to buy uh, you know, an internal combustion engine. But to me, that's the answer. Now, people who advocate the carbon tax think that that brings it about faster. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Well, doesn't it level the playing field? I mean, right now, I mean, you, you look at excess supply and how cheap fossil fuels are at the moment. How can alternatives possibly compete with that? 
Well, you know, that's a short-term problem. Uh, basically, we've spent so much time in the last uh, quarter century uh, generating new uh, sources of, of oil around the world and digging in places we didn't use to dig. And in fact, the technology of, of extraction has gotten uh, more and more advanced. And, uh, you know, the Saudi Arabians and, and others are still pumping like uh, there's no tomorrow. So it is going to continue to drive the price down. And that, that's a problem. Um, and, you know, that's another reason to prop up the price of, of gasoline with the tax. Uh, you know, like I said, if it's politically feasible, it's not a bad idea. Uh, but I don't think in and of itself it's the answer. I think, uh, you know, again, no matter what the price of oil is or what the price of energy is, you need it. And, you know, if, it was, if you set the tax very high, people are still going to use it. So the, you know, the real question I think is, what do you use with? How do you take that money and use it for the innovation that we need to replace fossil fuels? Right. If we walk this back though to the concept of the carbon tax, it is it is an attempt to change the behavior. And we talk about these Pigovian taxes from time to time mm-hmm. on our program, and, and the notable one is a tax on cigarettes, a so-called sin tax, where the alternative is not smoking, and that is preferable to the government. Right. Sure. Uh, but I mean, the, the, in this case, I mean, you're taxing people on carbon, and the alternative is to is don't use energy. It's use a different kind of, of energy, which just isn't there. But I, I sort of wonder if we're in a, a place where we, um, we prefer to punish a behavior rather than encourage another behavior. And right. I'm, I'm wondering if you could cite an example of a time where uh, a government chose to not punish, but instead chose to encourage a different behavior, and it worked out fantastically. Well, I mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in Canada, but here in the United States, uh, we decided uh, after World War II. That we, that we wanted to promote home, home ownership. So we made interest on mortgages uh, tax deductible, we made property tax tax deductible, and we developed something called the guaranteed mortgage. So people could buy a home by putting 10% down. Um, and the, the house itself and its rising value was its own insurance. So what happened in the U.S. is we went from being a nation of renters to a nation of owners. Uh, home ownership at its peak hit around 70%. So you can use uh, positive incentives to affect behavior. There's no, there's no question about it. I think, you know, uh, policy analysis, uh, particularly, you know, is dominated by economic thinking because economists essentially think that uh, behavior follows price and, and market incentives. And, you know, for the most part, that's true. But, you know, if you're addicted to something, whether it's tobacco or fossil fuels, you know, you'll pay any price because you you got to have the stuff. And that's where some of these, uh, you know, economic formula uh, fall apart. Well, the motivation then for finding this, this breakthrough and finding this alternative, I mean, part of the argument for carbon pricing is that it adds an economic motivation. Um, are, are you suggesting that, that it's an altruistic motivation and that's sufficient, or is it almost more of a, a survivalist motivation? Well, I, I think that the motivation really has to be, uh, you know, how, you ask yourself, how do we get innovation? You know, how have the innovations that have, that have built the modern economy come about? And so, you know, if you go back fair, to the most recent things like, you know, GPS or, uh, you know, the, the smartphone or the Internet, those were all U.S. Department of Defense research projects. 
Uh, in the case of GPS and uh, and shrinking computers and cell phones, it was to make sure that we, that uh, got that our, our missiles when we launched them uh, hit uh, Moscow and didn't hit Paris. You know that was right. the, that was the objective of those things. It turned out we've never sent any rockets to Moscow, but boy, that GPS certainly helps you when you're trying to get out of a traffic jam. So. We need, and, and interestingly enough, the military in the U.S. is doing a lot of research on solar because they discovered in Iraq that uh, oil tanks uh, were really big targets for IEDs. And so if you could power a base with solar power, uh, you know, it was much less vulnerable to uh, to attack. So there, there is a lot of basic research in applying nanotechnology to solar cells and, and extending battery life, and some of those uh, technologies are starting to be commercialized. And, and I think what we want to do is accelerate that process um, so that uh, you, know, you get to a point where instead of spending $15,000 to put a solar array on a roof, uh, your solar array fits on a window. Uh, and you have a battery the size of a laptop that powers your home for a week. When we get to that point and the price is, is right, everybody will have uh, their own energy, and, and you'll, be, you know, the, you'll, you'll have the kind of technology available to you so that you don't have to make these choices. In the meantime... Um, governments uh, look out for their own, and they're, they're, you know they've only got four years to impress people with their uh, with their policy ideas. And I, I look at the idea of a carbon tax as being politically expedient, but not necessarily well thought out. Well, I, th- I think that it has the advantage uh, of you know being large scale uh, and symbolic. And if you know what I'm what I'm concerned about is what is the money used for. Now, it's a regressive tax. Now, poor people use a higher proportion of their income on energy than rich people do. I mean, that just makes logical sense. So you have to figure out some way of getting those funds back to the people for whom it has the largest impact. And, you know, it's not going to do much good for them to wait a year before they get a check to pay for, you know, the extra cost of, of heating their home over the past winter. So. There needs to be, uh, in addition to the tax, a, a whole set of other uh, policy devices and tax devices to deal with the uh, impacts of these kinds of, of taxes, particularly on poor and working people. All right. Well, fascinating conversation, Professor Cohen. Uh, we'll leave it there. More at earth.columbia.edu, uh, the website for the Earth Institute. Really appreciate your time here this morning. Thanks for the insight. Thank you. Take care. All right, so there you go. That's uh, Stephen Cohen, executive director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Uh, why he doesn't like a carbon tax? I, I agree. I don't also like. A, I also don't like a carbon tax. You know, it's the, the thing that stands out to me about that conversation is when he says, like, you know, it's one thing to tax a behavior that people can get away from, or that there's an alternative to. Um, and maybe an example of that is like a tariff on a foreign on an imported product that you can already buy at home. Does that make sense? So like we're taxing the American beer. You can buy Canadian beer. So the alternative is like, all right, so you're tr- they're trying to make you behave a different way. But, you know, like it or not, we're going to use energy. We're going to to expend, you know, this carbon resource. So it's not something we can get away from. So by putting a tax on it, you're basically punishing people who, who need to use energy. Well, I, but in terms of, you know, if, if the goal is to reduce emissions, we need a policy mechanism that can reduce emissions. Then it seems to me that that's where a tax is efficient. The taxes do impact behavior. And 
if we need a policy to reduce emissions, it seems the, the most obvious and simple would be to tax those emissions. Now, if, if it's about trying to find the next big energy source or the next big innovation in, in so-called green energy, well, then that's, that's a different kind of objective. I don't know that the carbon tax is the way to go on that necessarily, but if the goal is to have a policy that reduces emissions, then it seems to me that, that to tax those emissions is, is the most obvious way to do so. Now, the concern is as well that this becomes a, a cash grab, and I think that's what we're seeing in Alberta, that this is not uh, a revenue-neutral policy. And I, I think Daniel Smith had an interesting piece up on the blog uh, at Newstalk770.com the other day on, on why um, reducing other taxes and bringing in a carbon tax could be a, a good policy. We're going to take a short pause here. And uh, we'll have this conversation with you now when we come back. Nine seven four eight two five five. What are your thoughts on what you've heard so far about a national carbon tax or really any carbon tax in general? This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk seven seventy. We're going to talk a bit more about green energy. We're going to get into that after ten thirty. Mark Milkey's co-authored a new piece for the Montreal Economic Institute on green energy subsidies and uh, why it's likely to lead to uh, us folks here in Alberta uh, paying a lot more for electricity in the coming years. So we'll talk about that coming up after ten thirty. But uh, looking at this idea of a carbon tax, now the premiers of the first ministers meeting yesterday and uh, brad wall seemed to be the lone voice against additional carbon pricing right carbon pricing mechanism seems to be the the trendy buzzword at the moment I mean, just just call it a carbon tax really uh so i, I think a lot of albertans are going to feel hard done by here because you know we sort of made that sacrifice we've done our part we've got an ndp government that's going to bring in a carbon tax and there's going to be a double whammy we're going to get hit again from from ottawa and what's the objective here when gas is cheaper, do people drive a lot more, like substantially more? It might um, change your behavior. You might drive on the road trip instead of fly on your holiday or something to that effect. But, I mean, look, we had gas, what, under 70 cents for a couple of days there. Were you taking the long way home just because of that? I mean, like... Well, no, I think certainly in the summer driving season, I, I, I do think, uh, you know, whether people are going to take long driving vacations, that uh, the, the cost of fuel is uh, certainly factors into that. It, it does, but, I mean, that's the cost of gasoline, not the cost of the tax on top of it. So I look at the carbon tax, and as it, it disproportionately affects lower-income individuals. And I get to the, I think I get to the point that Steve Cohen is getting to, where you say, look, if you want to reduce emissions, don't create a policy that punishes one behavior and try to punish people into the good behavior. Create an environment where the solutions can flourish, can thrive. So if, for example, the idea was we need to have, um, you know, a, a, a solar power, just as an example, okay, we, we need to transition from, from fossil fuels to solar power. Well, then put in some incentive to spend a lot of money on R&D into solar and, 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 you know, cut costs of producing solar panels or something like that, getting into that nanotechnology space that he was talking about and say, look, if you're a solar technician, here's what your income tax is going to be. You might want to look at going into this because you pay less income tax if you're in this uh, industry, in, in the solar industry, than you will in all other industries. Well, but I think the, the argument for the carbon tax then is that it, it offers that simplicity that what I think what you're talking about then involves a lot more uh, government interference and a lot more government deciding that it should be this or it should be that or we're going to push things in a certain direction. The, 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 the thing with the carbon tax is that you just you put the carbon tax in and that's it. And you take a step back and you just you leave it to the market. And so if industry then is thinking, OK, 
uh, do we pay this tax? Do we find a way that we don't have to pay this tax? And that's what ends up driving the the innovation is that it's a response to the tax, that it's the, the market deciding what makes sense, what's the best solution to getting around this tax, rather than having government say, look, solar panels are the answer. Go make solar panels. Go figure it out. It, it takes it out of government's hands. Hey, Ed, thanks for the phone call. What's up? <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, I just wonder why we're all a car, car, calling it a carbon tax or a CO2 tax, and whether it should be called a greenhouse gas tax instead, because uh, it was just a car or CO2 tax, then it's sort of punitive against the fossil fuel industry, where if it's a greenhouse gas, it includes other emission sources like methanes and, and, and what have you. And, uh, uh, you know, the second point on this... Well, once, too, you get, once you get past methane, though, there's not a whole lot else, what yeah, have well, you. Yeah, methane's pretty significant, too, in the whole panel. Like, well, what is it, about, like 10%? In other words, like, like some areas will generate more CO2. Other areas of the country will generate more methane. And this is why I'm saying, by putting a national greenhouse gas, it could balance the rhetoric and the numbers uh, somewhat. And the other thing that I kind of wonder why uh, Alberta is not taking the credits... For the natural gas we ship, export out of this province that are used to back out bunker C and coal in eastern Canada. I mean, that's an enormous uh, CO2 uh, credit that should be applied to this industry. And, uh, and, and you don't hear anything about it by the politicians. It seems to be a forgotten well, What do you mean by thing. credit? You mean that they should... Because we don't really uh, have a cap-and-trade system that, that offers Well, a cap-and-trade system, yeah, you can, you can consider it as part of cap-and-trade or, or substitution. Uh, that uh, what used to be occurred at one time. Uh, you could buy credits to grow trees in Nigeria, for example, and that would be a credit. Okay, but that has uh, nothing to do with the tax. Thing, well, just stay with me a little bit. Uh, and, and assuming, in, say, in eastern Canada, you got, uh, which is a the case, they, they use a lot of bunker C in, in, uh, in uh, burning heating homes, and, and they had a lot of coal industry, mm-hmm. uh, power generated by the coal industry, and we exported gas to there. Those, that carbon emission from coal and bunker C is many times, about two times greater than it is from, from uh, power generated from methane. Now, that's an enormous tax credit, national, or a CO2 credit taken nationally. And, uh, and even though Alberta doesn't change with the emissions, uh, but the credit well, we in were. Ontario was enormous. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. You, you didn't advocate for like for carbon transfer or carbon credits by planting uh, trees in we, Nigeria, we did you? We should be considering that. No, we shouldn't. Absolutely not. That's there, there's horrible downstream effects from that. I mean, uh, like what do you mean horrible downstream effects? From well, that? like for example, if if the government of Nigeria decides that it's more valuable to uh, confiscate land from their people and sell it to Canada, then they'll do that. Well, That's what's happened in Mexico. That. And the problem with that has been is that when they tried that, they they, they put trees on on very uh, agricultural lands. They didn't use it on. on, on no, no, no. You're destroying lands. you're destroying people's lives, is what I'm saying. And, well, and uh, we've seen well, this in Central uh, America. Well, yeah, and that have, But I'm saying that, that was a policy that didn't exist, uh, or didn't, or was not very successful. No. Uh, well, also, uh, damaging. All I'm saying harmful. is that we're not taking credit for the benefit. Uh, in Canada, we've reduced the net greenhouse gas emissions from Canada by putting natural gas into Ontario, Quebec. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think uh, um, Ed makes a good point there. That that when, when, and I think it's actually a broader point even than the, than the specific one he's making is that when Canada does do things right, we don't get or well, take okay. credit. Well, I think what he's saying is that when we calculate all of Canada's emissions, that we should be factoring in these other things, and that will take away from the total number. That I get. Mm-hmm. Say so Canada's overall emissions were X. Well, okay, let's 
let's count the emissions, but let's also take away that from that total based on the things he's describing. But when you say we should get a credit for that, I, I just I, I wasn't quite clear what he meant by well, we and what he meant by a credit. It, it could be that he's saying that because Alberta supplied a cleaner burning fuel to another Canadian jurisdiction, that the reduction in greenhouse gases in that jurisdiction should actually be credited to Alberta. So if 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 Ontario's CO2 uh, output went from 100 to 90 because of something they got from Alberta, then Alberta should get those 10 points of credit. Okay. Well, we're gonna, all right. We're going to talk more about green energy and government subsidies and what that all means for, for you and I. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. We're working for the weekend, just like you. Well, um, everybody, really. Yeah, that's what I meant. I mean, I was just doing it like one-on-one, the secret of great radio, Rob. One-on-one. That's the magic sauce. <laughs> so we, we, we've got this conversation that I guess is just a carousel, right? <clears throat> this uh, this chit-chat about what we should do with our public sector employee contracts when they come up. Right now, it's teachers. You know, it could be nurses. could be anybody. Right now, it's teachers. And we got to figure out now uh, how much we're going to pay teachers. The government's going to say, well, times are tough, and you know, we value public sector employees, and the teachers are going to say, we took no pay raises for three years and a meager one last time, year, and now we want our due. And we, the public, um, who will pay the teachers with our own tax dollars, are going to sit here on the sidelines and go, I hope you guys work out a good deal. Well, this is what David Egan, the education minister, uh, said recently, because he's got to negotiate a new contract with teachers, says that uh, these negotiations will probably set the tone for many other public uh, service negotiations that will take place in the coming weeks and months and years. So, so I feel the full weight of that responsibility of setting a tone that is affordable for this province during this difficult economic time. So setting an affordable tone in terms of negotiating with the people that work for the province, for the government, the government has to figure out how much money do we have, how much money can we pay these people. So it's inevitable that these kinds of negotiations get caught up in the you know, the swings in the economy. And when times are great and we're rolling in cash, it's easier for unions, I suppose, to, to squeeze more out of the government. Right now, we've got a, a government that's very favorable to, to unions of all stripes uh, saying that, you know, we don't have much money. The cupboard's pretty bare, and uh, so it's not, you know, there's no guarantee that, that this is going to be uh, favorable to them. I feel like it's the busloads of crybabies who get their rhetoric that rises to the top of this conversation every time. Because we get, you know, if you ask it, you say, what's a fair price for a teacher? Somebody will say to you, oh, you don't value the work that teachers do? And then you, get, you don't get to have the argument. You don't, you don't get to ask the legitimate question. And then on the other side of that, there's people who are saying, well, everybody else in Alberta is hurting. They need to take a pay cut, too. And I think to myself, does that apply across all boundaries? I mean, uh, what should radio DJs make in relation to what coal miners make? And the question that I want to have answered, and this is what I'm going to personally explore in this conversation. The rest of you are free to do whatever you want. But I would like to know if there's a way that we could figure out the productivity of what teachers do and figure out, the the price per unit of that productivity, and then we would have a, a benchmark that we could establish for today and forever of how much we pay teachers. What's a fair price to pay teachers that's, like, empirically uh, supported? Well, and again, I mean, if, if teacher pay is linked to outcome, we want better student outcomes. And so maybe then if paying teachers more means uh, we get better outcomes, maybe that, that money 
is worth it. Maybe it pays for itself in the long run. But, you know, what does the economic evidence tell us about how best to pay teachers? Uh, joining us on the line is uh, Eric Hanischek, who's uh, Paul and uh, Jean Hanna, senior fellow with the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. Uh, Professor Hanischek, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, there, there is a considerable uh, amount of, of research on the link between teacher pay and student outcomes or how best to pay teachers in the first place. Is, is there any kind of general consensus from all of that? Well, I think there is a consensus, and uh, that is that right now most places don't link pay at all to the productivity of teachers. So what we've learned over the last over 50 years uh, now is that there are big differences in how effective individual teachers are. But unfortunately, the differences in effectiveness are not linked to the amount that we're paying individual teachers. We pay in a way that's unrelated to performance. Right. And there's a, I think there's a bit of a pitfall here in that as we have this conversation, it might sound like the taxpayer is a taskmaster who's sort of whipping teachers to, uh, to earn their money. But the, the issue that I have with it, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is that we pay based on really educational attainment and then tenure. And so a poor teacher, poor performing teacher with poor productivity, is frequently paid more than a great teacher with great productivity who has less tenure. Precisely, precisely. And that's that's the debate that's been going on throughout all of North America in the United States and in Canada, but almost around the world is that um, wouldn't we be better off if we tried to align what we pay individual teachers with how uh, well they do in the classroom? And part of this is, in, in my own opinion, um, the best teachers are woefully un, underpaid. We should pay our best teachers a lot, lot more because they're contributing a huge amount to the nation and the economy. But at the same time, our worst teachers are woefully overpaid. And uh, it's getting that balance right that I think comes into play when you talk about how much should we pay a teacher. It's not that all teachers are the same. Well, and that's an interesting point because I think, you know, teachers unions tend to downplay that. We, we've got standardized testing here and we've got at least one think tank that uses those, those testing results to rank schools and teachers will say, look, it's, it's unfair to do so because, um, you know, you've got socioeconomic circumstances that come into play and, um, you know, that that doesn't tell the whole story of the impact that a teacher's having in the classroom. So are, are there empirical ways of, of measuring teacher performance? I make two points on this. One is there are empirical ways to separate out the background of kids from mm-hmm. what the teacher is adding. Uh, there's been a lot of academic and sort of applied research on what's called the value added of teachers, estimating how much is the teacher contributing over and above all of the other factors that enter into education. And so that um, work has proceeded to a point where we have a pretty good idea of how we can adjust individual test scores for how difficult the job is each teacher has. Um, 
But the second thing is that it's, it is also true that um, the teachers have a good point, that they do a lot more than just the math and reading that we test regularly and know about, and that you want to have an evaluation system that both uses objective student performance measures, but you also want to have subjective measures on a, on a rigorous basis by um, personnel who, who judge this, the headmaster or principal in the school or other ways that you can do this to provide a balanced view of just who's doing a good job and who isn't. So is there... <laughs> you know, has anyone developed a mechanism that would accurately or adequately do that? Absolutely. Uh, um, the the best example is actually one that is found in Washington D.C. And if you know the United States and Washington D.C., you know it's a really bad school system. It's a a tough place, and the schools historically haven't done very well. But five years ago, they developed a new teacher contract that had a, uh, an evaluation system for all t- teachers. If there were test scores, they used test scores for half of the evaluations and then judgments by outside evaluators, professional evaluators for the other half. If there were no test scores, the outside eva- evaluators were solely responsible for this. It turns out that there's only, in at least Washington, D.C., about 20% of the teachers that have the right test data and other information to allow estimating these value-added scores for teachers. And so most teachers in Washington were evaluated under a very formal evaluation system with professional evaluators. Now, the important part of this story is that after this system was operating for a while, you could see that it had quite noticeable uh, effects on student outcomes. Students were doing better. Teachers that shouldn't be in the schools were more likely to leave the schools. And in fact, the formal evaluation system would uh, fire a teacher who was in the bottom uh, part of the distribution for two years in a row. But it would also give very large bonuses and bumps in base pay to teachers who are doing very well. So the good teachers stayed around longer, the bad teachers left earlier, and kids learned more. Well, this is interesting because then, you know, the tendency seems to be, certainly for, for the governments here that we're familiar with, and I suggest governments elsewhere, that you know, we're not looking at what kind of outcomes we expect. We're just basically looking at the total bill of teacher payrolls and saying that maybe that should be higher or maybe that should be lower, that we're missing out on this, you know, this, this innovation. Well, that's, that's absolutely correct, that that's not the way to be doing it, because as you pointed out in your introduction, there's very little way to decide how much should a teacher be paid. We know how we pay newsmen and um, uh, miners. Uh, there's a market there that determines uh, salaries to a large extent. And if somebody is underpaid, they leave private companies and go someplace else. If they're overpaid, the company goes out of business. But that doesn't happen with government employees. Um, and so particularly in instances like teaching where you can observe the outcomes of their uh, work through student performance, governments should be 
focused more on at least trying to copy what the market does and reward people for doing a good job and not for doing a bad job. Right, and that sounds a little bit like merit-based pay. I, I don't necessarily think you're advocating for that, but but there's this one argument that always comes up when we talk about merit-based pay, which is if you had a great teacher and someone else said, hey, you get paid a lot on this new system and you're a great teacher, what's your secret? That that person would never talk and you would never share the educational, uh, you know, uh, incentive, or not incentive, but that, that, that enterprising type of teacher would never share their, their secrets, their trade secrets with other teachers because they want the money. Now that's been suggested. I, I think that that argument is really over overdone. Um, you know, I'm uh, uh, I'm paid on a merit basis. Um, somebody's making a judgment about whether I'm doing a good job or not, and I'm willing to tell people what I'm doing. Uh, uh, I think that that's that's really um, you know there are there are possibilities of all kinds of mischief from merit pay of people cheating on tests or not telling other people and so forth. And there's some of that that goes on that you have to pay attention to. But on the other hand, uh, the cost of not paying attention to who's doing a good job and who isn't is that you end up with poor achievement of students and a more expensive teacher force. So do we have jurisdictions then that we can we can look to to say well you know th- this has been tried in this jurisdiction and, and, and you know it worked great or this was tried here and, and it didn't work so well? Well that's what I say Washington DC is an example where right. they've actually tried it there's evaluations of it that are really quite good evaluations that show success. Um, I'm uh, currently working with people in Dallas, Texas, where they've spent a lot of time introducing a a very different kind of pay system that is based upon performance. Um, Now, we don't have the results yet, but you can see how different this is than paying somebody for um, how much experience they have or what degrees they have. So you, you mentioned a while a while back uh, about the contribution to the economy, and I think if I followed that naturally, what you were saying is that good teachers produce good students who go on to get good jobs, who go on to be productive members of society that would, I guess, ultimately increase the GDP. Is that the? Is that, oh, that's precisely okay. So well, then, it's two things. It's two things. Um, one, it's that you, and in fact, there's. Uh, some work, research that I've done and, and that others have also done in a different setting that shows the um, very large economic value of the top teachers and the very large cost of bottom teachers in terms of future earnings of their students. There's a second thing um, that's also important, and that is that um, overall achievement, uh, which we measure at a national level by uh, international test scores. You might know of the PISA tests, right. which are developed by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development uh, that basically take a math problem and walk it around the world so that we know which countries kids do better at solving math problems than others. Uh, Canada solves a lot better, a lot more math problems than the U.S., by the way. But um, we now know that 
performance on these tests is a very good indicator of skills that are important for the national economy and that determine economic growth in the future, long-run economic growth. And so it uh, makes a huge difference to a country to have high-achieving kids because they grow up to be workers that increase the productivity of the economy and in turn lead to higher economic growth. Interesting. Eric, uh, Eric Hanischak, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Good talking to you. Good luck with the uh, negotiation. <laughs> well, well, I'm not sure anything will happen by this conversation, but let's hope maybe <laughs> you inform some of the players. We appreciate it. <laughs> bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. Eric Hanischek, Paul and Jean Hanna, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford, uh, Stanford uh, University, that is. Uh, Rob, let's take a break right here. We've got some people phoning in and lots of text messages that we can get to uh, after a quick pause. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, 974-8255 is our telephone number. You can text us as well, 770-770. You know, the question of whether teachers are overpaid or underpaid, I mean, that, that's that's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, the, two of our, our economist buddies, uh, Trevor Toom and uh, Mike Moffat, were having this conversation on Twitter. And an interesting point that Mike Moffat made was that, well, if teachers were overpaid or anybody was overpaid, says you'd expect large labor surpluses where the wage was above what market forces would dictate. And in Alberta, the, the unemployment rate for education is pretty much at the national average, about 3.5%. So that, that's one way to look at it. I mean, you can look at what the average earnings are in Alberta. You can look at cost of living in Alberta. Uh, you can look at a lot of things. You can look at what teachers are paid in other provinces. So I don't know how you determine that in the first place. So that's why I think we need to look at what, what uh, Eric Hanischek is talking about. Uh, how do we get the best outcomes? Because then you're getting value for the money you're spending. Let me float this balloon. Just going to put it out there. In the union environment, in like the, the Alberta Teachers Association environment, half of the teachers are either overpaid or underpaid. Okay. <laughs> All right. You see what I'm saying? If I were in the 90th percentile of teachers, I would probably want the union to break so that I could get into a system where I'm, I'm earning more of what I'm worth compared to the rest of the of the area, which is to say if it were a hockey team, somebody in the ATA is a 50-goal scorer, someone is a fourth-line plug. They probably make the same money. Well, and, you know, and someone made the point that, you know, you know, living in Calgary and earning, say, you know, 60 or 70,000 a year, that's, that can be tough to do. Right. I mean, there are people who earn less than that, obviously, but, uh, you know, it's just all because, you know, a teacher living in Drumheller or Wetaskiwin, you know, that that money goes a lot further. So there's a lot of variation even within Alberta if you want to get into cost of living. Let's get to the phones here. Uh, Mark has phoned in. Hi, Mark. Thanks for the call. Hey, guys. Uh, In my opinion, I think any government employee is overpaid. Uh, But uh, that being said, you guys never touched on um, that teachers don't actually work the full year, right? Their salary is based on 10 months. And also, the uh, I know when my kids went to school, uh, the professional days always seem to end up on a Friday or a Monday. Yeah. Um, another thing as well is, uh, um, shoot, now I'm trying to think too fast and the words aren't coming out of my mouth. Okay, the point <laughs> about teachers, yeah, they, they work. Bad, it's not working. All right. Okay. But, Fair enough. Um, another, the uh, Easter holidays, March break, uh, the summer holidays, the Christmas holidays, uh, all those Taken into account, I'm sure a teacher maybe works, what, 125 days a year? 
Um, sure. Listen, I, I don't know the numbers, but um, the but, uh, so, pe- anyway, people. Okay, I appreciate the call, Mark. And and people respond to that, by the way, before you, you you go, Rob. People respond to that by saying, "Well, you know, sick days taken out of vacation, et cetera, et cetera." So th- there's a, there's an, uh, a belief in the teaching profession that it, it balances out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you'd, you'd hear that argument. I mean, it's tough to gauge how many hours in a year a teacher works because what, what do you count as work, right? I mean, if you're at home on a Tuesday night marking tests, I guess technically you're working, right? Yep. You know, you're planning tomorrow's lesson. So I don't know, you know, that that, that can be a gray area. In term, but I mean, essentially we're talking about you get this much money over the course of a year and your job is to be a teacher. I, I don't know if Mark's suggesting that, well, you got two months off in the summer, you can go be an Uber driver for two months. Right. I, I, I don't know. That, is that what we are expecting here? So I, I don't know. I mean, it seems this is your annual compensation. But yes, okay, the, the school year happens to be, you know, 10 months. I, I don't know how that how we change it based on that. Yeah, and I don't know if that argument gets to the point, right? Because ultimately we do want to figure out how we value teachers. We don't want to scrutinize what they do. Like, how do you value, like, I'll, I'll just put myself at the center of this. How do you value me? I sit in a room and I talk, right? So is this yeah, it from what the hell? Yeah, that's from, all you do. That's it. <laughs> My entire job is for 15 hours a week. I sit in this chair and I I flap my gums, but of course you don't see any of the other stuff that I do. So nobody sees me reading all the the papers and the content that uh, uh, that I use to inform myself about the show, or nobody takes into consideration all the other things. So it's really easy, basically, just to say, well, as I see you working, this is what you. Uh, this is why I can I can justify my claim that you're overpaid. But we do have to kind of get to this idea where we look at the outcomes. I think we look at teaching as units of productivity and pay people according to how much productivity there is in the environment. That's how we. The, the employers get our best value out of it. Well, and that's the point, and that's part of the argument teachers make, right? That we need good teachers, we need well-paid teachers because the work they do is so important. So we 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 can measure outcomes. Then we we've got something to link it to. I mean, it's a little different with a family doctor. How do you judge who's a good family doctor? Or someone who's a good surgeon? I mean, obviously we expect them all to be good surgeons. Right. <laughs> like you're not really good at doing. Uh, you know, knee surgery, so we're going to pay you less. It's like, well, no, if you're not good at knee surgery, you shouldn't be there at all. <laughs> so, I, yeah, it's that's tough, right? But but with, if you use mechanics, for example, right, and you take your car to the mechanic and say, fix my car, and then you drive off the lot and it's not fixed, you don't go back to the mechanic unless it's to get your money back. But you can fire that guy and you can move on. We don't really get a chance to fire the teacher, do we? We don't get a chance to fire the teacher. Well, I guess it depends what you're talking about. I mean, if a you know if a teacher is uh, doing something inappropriate with a student, a teacher can get fired. But is a teacher getting fired for performance, not being a good teacher? I don't think that happens very often. Let's get Steve in here really quick. Steve, we've only got about 20 seconds for you, so please go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to call in. My brother lives with me, and he's a teacher for Calgary Catholic. And I just get to see him every day and how much effort he puts in. And basically, when he comes home, he talks to me about how excited he was about a great lesson plan that went on and just he also tells me about the other coworkers he has that show up late or hungover right um that abuse basically the job and he's he's proud of what he does and he puts a ton of effort into it and uh, the, the profession I, I can't think of many other than maybe doctors that is more important to our society They are shaping everything. Right, Steve, you know, thanks very much for the call. And and I think you just kind of point out the disparity amongst the entire teaching ranks, and maybe they don't all deserve the same paycheck. All right. Well, we've got a... 
interesting conversation coming up at the 1130 News. Uh, that, that's all I'll say for now. We're back with more right after this.